Hello, this is William Fink of Christogenia.org, and this is Christogenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 16th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part 29 of our commentary on the Gospel of John, and it is subtitled, The Final Earthly Journey. Sometimes I calculate my subtitles to draw search engine traffic away from Judeo-Christian websites, and I don't know how effective that is, but sometimes I see it in, in the um, Google search results. So it's still nevertheless true, and it's going to be our theme this evening. Before we get there, as it is recorded in the earlier chapters of John, Yahshua Christ had healed the lame man and opened the eyes of the blind, and these things were done in accord with the words of the prophets in relation to the coming Savior, which would be Yahweh God himself. For example, as it is written in Isaiah chapter 35, Say to them that are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with a vengeance, even God with a recompense, and he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. This we have already discussed at length when we encountered John's testimony of the healing of the lame man in chapter 5, or of the man who was blind from birth in chapter 9 of his gospel. While it is not recorded in John, there are also accounts of his having healed the deaf and the dumb. For example, in Mark chapter 7, we read, And again, departing from the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, he came under the Sea of Galilee, through the midst of the coasts of Decapolis, and they bring unto him one that was deaf, and had an impediment in his speech, and they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude, and put his fingers into his ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said unto him, Ephatha, that is, be opened, ostensibly in Hebrew, or some would say Aramaic, but the apostles called it Hebrew. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. And he charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. And they were beyond measure astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. Where the people had said, He has done all things well, He makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. The reference to all things must have been to all of the things that the Old Testament had prophesied in relation to a promised Savior or Messiah for Israel. They could recognize that Yahshua Christ was the promised Messiah 
from the things which he was able to do that had been written in the words of the prophets many centuries earlier. This is explained by Christ himself in Matthew chapter 11, where John the Baptist, just before his death, wanted to verify that Yahshua was indeed the Messiah. So he sent his disciples to question him. And they said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. It is the same things that were written in the prophets, which were also being reported to the officers of the temple, as we just read in Mark. And he charged them that they should tell no man, but the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it. But instead of being awed, they became offended and obsessed with killing him because he was a threat to their own status and position. Now, with the greatest of miracles, which is the resurrection of the dead, their obsession begins to culminate here in John chapter 11, where the reason we have given for their hatred is also verified. We will not get quite that far in our commentary this evening. Because there are a few things here in John chapter 11, and concerning events which are described in John chapter 12, that we must first discuss. So this evening, we basically only have an introduction to the circumstances surrounding the resurrection of Lazarus. Actually, and admittedly, when I first started writing this, and I wrote this introduction Yesterday morning, I really thought I would get to the resurrection of Lazarus and decided not to because I couldn't finish that account. So we will get right up to it. The fact remains that for decades after his ascension, after the ascension of Christ, so many witnesses were willing to die for their testimony of Christ in the face of Roman and Jewish opposition. And then so many vicarious witnesses had followed them in that death for several centuries. Things which are all historically verifiable helps to firmly establish that these testimonies are true. Ostensibly, with these events which are recorded in John chapter 11, it is now almost three and a half years from the start of the ministry of Christ. And just about a week before his trial and crucifixion, maybe a little more than a week, it's difficult to tell. While chapter 10 of his gospel left Christ in the place where John had baptized, across the Jordan and not far from Jerusalem, this account 
in chapter 11 begins over four months later. And we cannot imagine that Christ remained in that place for so long a time. Now it is near the Passover, the beginning of our April. Actually, Passover would be our April 2nd, 14 days after the vernal equinox, the first day of spring. And John had recorded nothing since the discourse on the Good Shepherd had been made in the temple at the Feast of Restoration, perhaps four months before, in late November or very early December. In the Synoptic Gospels leading up to this week, Yahshua travels with a multitude of disciples from Galilee to Judea and makes his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem about a week before his crucifixion. Technically, I believe it was six days, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 21 and in Mark chapter 11. The multitude of disciples with him at this time is evident in Luke chapter 18, where Yahshua once again prophecies of his imminent death and resurrection, and we read in part, as Luke also recorded this journey, but didn't say anything about the triumphal entrance into the city. Luke said, And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the way, sat by the wayside, begging, and hearing the multitude pass, the multitude, the multitude of people that were with Christ. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passes by. In Luke chapter 19, Bethany is mentioned, but neither Luke nor the other gospel writers said anything about the raising of Lazarus, which John describes here, which must have happened not long after Christ had passed through Jericho, arriving in Judea for his last sojourn. In Jerusalem. While it is inevitable that Christ would have to attend the temple in Jerusalem for the upcoming Passover feast, here John begins by describing the sickness of Lazarus as the reason why he went to Judea when he did, because the other Gospels speak about the coming Passover and his coming Passion, but they don't explain why he went to Judea when he did in these same terms. So, in John chapter 11, in verse 1, And there was a certain sick man, Lazarus, from Bethania, in the Christian New Testament, after the spelling, which is in the Greek, in the King James Version, of course, it is Bethany, Lazarus from Bethania, from of the town of Mariam and her sister Martha. Bethania is, of course, the Bethany of the King James Version, a village near the Mount of Olives in Judea, which was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. The precise meaning of the name is not clear, but the original Strong's lexicon says, House of Dates to which the newer edition adds House of Misery, quite a variation. 
The name Mariam is often found as Maria throughout the various manuscripts of the Gospels, even in most of the oldest manuscripts, and also as Mary in the King James Version of the Bible. Mariam is defined in Strong's Greek lexicon as being derived from a Hebrew word, meri, <clears throat> which is bitterness or rebellion. There's actually a related word in the book of Ruth, where Naomi, after the death of her husband and her son or sons, and she brings Ruth back to the land of Judah with her from the land of Moab where they were dwelling, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. So that's a related word to this word, Mariam, which is bitterness or rebellion. The name was shared by two women in the Old Testament, where the King James Version spells it as Miriam. One of them was the sister of Moses and Aaron, and the other a later descendant of Judah. I would assert that it also may, de may be derived, this name, Miriam or Mariam, also may be derived from Mary and the contraction of the word am or people. Thereby, it may be said that Mary, the mother of Christ, who also bore this same name, represented the rebellious people from whom he was born. The newer editions of Strong's states that Mariam means their rebellion, which nearly accords with our assertion. The name Martha is described in the original Strong's Greek lexicon as having a derivation which is probably of Chaldean origin, meaning mistress, with which Joseph Thayer agrees in his own lexicon. The more recent Strong's Dictionary agrees with the original Strong's as to the origin of the word, but concerning its meanings, it says that it means she was rebellious without giving a source or citation. That would mean that it had come from the same Hebrew root, the same Hebrew root word as Mariam. And there are vaguely similar words, Meriuth, which is bitterness, and the feminine name Meriath, which is rebellious, Strong's numbers 4812 and 4814. However, it also seems likely, and more likely to me, that Martha may have been derived from the Hebrew word merith, Strong's number 4830, which is feeding or pasturage. And that best fits her personality, for which see Luke chapter 10, verses 40 and 41, where Martha was cumbered about much serving, while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Martha, being concerned with feeding and taking care of people who are in her home, that meaning of Mariv, which is feeding or pasturage, after the Hebrew um, 
custom, I should say, of, of names describing a facet of somebody's personality fits her very well. Finally, the name Lazarus is said by Strong's to be probably of Hebrew origin, referring readers to the name Eleazar, which means God is helper. Of course, Lazarus being raised from the dead certainly was helped by God in the person of Yahshua Christ. The newer Strong's Dictionary says that Lazarus means whom God helps. As a digression, we must comment, I must comment on some Greek grammar, which hopefully may also help to clarify a few arguments concerning names such as Jesus. It seems natural that the name Eleazar would be elided into Lazar in Greek, and then given a Greek ending, becoming Lazarus, whereby it would become declinable. In grammar, a declension is a slight change in the form of a word according to its function in a sentence, and the change is called an inflection. In Greek, the ending added to a noun or adjective, or sometimes other words, would change according to the case in which it was used, whether it be the subject or object of a verb. The subject is the nominative case, the object is the accusative case, or whether it is possessive or dative or certain other cases. For the same reason, the Hebrew form of Yahshua is elided and given a Greek ending where it becomes Jesus, a form which is also declinable. With few exceptions, all Greek words end in a vowel or in the letters N, R, or S, and they can be declined, or if they are verbs, the inflections are called conjugations rather than declensions. Nouns which do not end in one of these letters are indeclinable, meaning that their form does not change regardless of how they are used in a sentence. The names Mariam, ending with an M, and David, ending with a D, are examples of these types of words in the New Testament. Now, John provides some background on Mariam by referencing an event which he himself did not record, or rather has not yet recorded, as we shall discuss. Now, it was Mariam who anointed the prince with ointment and wiped off his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, Earlier, we only read that brother was from of the town of Mariam and her sister Martha, where you might think he may have been just a next-door neighbor or the guy across the street. But here, Lazarus is called Mariam's brother. Maybe he has his own house in another part of town. That's a possibility also. It's probably not likely, but it's a possibility. In verse 1, the name Mariam 
appears in the form Marius in all of the ancient manuscripts. And Marius, Maria with an S on the end, is the genitive form of the word or the name Maria. The form Mariam is indeclinable, so it should never be changed. But there, the form Marius in verse 1 appears even in the manuscripts which have employed Mariam as the spelling of the name. This seems to suggest that the scribes who wrote Mariam knew that in Greek the form should have been Maria, although in our translation we did not follow that suggestion. Starting my translation of the Gospels with Luke, the form Mariam prevails rather consistently in nearly all of the manuscripts for nearly every occurrence. So because Mariam was the prevalent spelling amongst all the best manuscripts in Luke, I sought to maintain consistency with that when I translated the other Gospels at a later time. When I translated the Christogenian New Testament, I actually began with the hardest part. I began with Paul of Tarsus, never imagining that I was going to translate anything more than the letters of Paul. That was my original endeavor. Here in verse 2, the name is Maria in the 3rd century papyrus P66 in the codices Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Beze, and Washington, Washingtonensis, and in the majority text. It is Mariam in the 4th century papyrus P6 and in the Codex Vaticanus. So we see that in John's Gospel, and this is pretty consistent, Mariam is the alternate, the, the, the name, the, the form of the name used in a, in a minority of the manuscripts where Maria has the preponderance. In Luke's gospel, it's the other way around. It's really the same name, and I'm really only giving this background so that we can understand not only why sometimes we read Mariam and sometimes we read Maria and sometimes we might read Mary, but so that people understand or have insight into a lot of the minor petty differences in the manuscripts, because it's really the same person, regardless of how we refer to her. The word for ointment here is muron, Strong's number 3464. It's a general word for ointment, which is not necessarily myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H. Citing its use by Herodotus, use of this word muron, Liddell and Scott defined the word as sweet juice extracted from plants, sweet oil, unguent, or balsam. And they also state that it was later used to describe the place where unguents were sold, the perfume market, citing Aristotle. Liddell and Scott explained that myrrh is the gum of an Arabian tree, and the name for that tree in Latin. The scientific name is Balsamodendron myrrh. 
and it's called Smyrna in Greek. And among other things, it was used as incense, as an unguent or salve, or for embalming the dead, citing several ancient classical writers. Myrrh was also one of the gifts which the Magi had brought to Christ as a child, and Matthew used the more particular word, Smyrna, or Smyrna, which also happens to be the name of the city of one of the seven churches of the Revelation. So while the English word myrrh is obviously borrowed from the general Greek word for ointment, which is myron, Smyrna was used of a particular ointment, which we know as myrrh. So now you might know why I have always translated that word myron as ointment and never as myrrh. Smyrna is myrrh. We have an account in Luke chapter 7 where an unnamed woman had acted similarly while Christ was in Capernaum in Galilee. There Luke had written, And behold, a woman in a city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment <clears throat> and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him, for she is a sinner. The Pharisee, whose name was Simon, then contended with Christ and was reproved by him for despising the obviously repentant woman. The subsequent sequence of events recorded in Luke inform us that this event, which is described in Luke chapter 7, happened long before these final weeks in the ministry of Christ. But the woman of Luke chapter 7 could only have been Mariam if Mariam was in Galilee at that much earlier time. And otherwise, it must have been a different woman. In Luke chapter 8, Luke describes at least some of the women who accompanied Christ at that time. And this particular Mariam is not named among them. However, here, while John wrote in a past tense, he is writing much later than any of these events had actually occurred. And this explanation here in chapter 2 is only a parenthetical remark. So it is possible that he is referring to something which he has yet to describe, where John recorded that Mariam had anointed Christ in that exact manner later on in chapter 12 of this gospel. That later anointing is also described in both Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. So that's the interpretation that I lean towards, that the woman in Luke chapter 7 is actually a different woman. And here in John 
chapter 11, verse 2, John is actually referring to an event that he hasn't yet described, that he will describe in chapter 12. Therefore the sisters, verse 3, sent to him, saying, Prince, behold, he whom you are fond of is sick. And here the verb for fond is phileo, where in verse 5, the verb for love is agapeo. And we sought to make a distinction between the two. The King James Version has love in both places. Evidently, we do not know Lazarus from any of the earlier accounts in the Gospels. Now, I say evidently because Christ had healed people earlier and encountered people earlier, but if any of them were Lazarus, he isn't named, right? Of course, there is the Lazarus of the parable in Luke chapter 16, but that is an allegory which was made at an earlier time, and it is not necessarily the same Lazarus. As we have explained, the name Lazarus is from a Hebrew phrase which means God is helper, a Hellenized form of the ancient Hebrew name Eleazar. So the name is fitting to use in the context of the parable that Luke had recorded. As shall be evident in John chapter 12, the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus is also the house of one Simon the leper. Christ healed a leper in Galilee in Matthew chapter 8, who may have been the same leper as the one mentioned in Mark chapter 1 and Luke chapter 5, but not necessarily Simon the leper of Bethany in Judea. However, it is evident that this leper was healed and was still called the leper because he had once had leprosy. So it was not necessarily recorded when he was healed. Christ must have known the family of Mariam, Martha, and Lazarus from an earlier point in his ministry and knew them well enough to lodge with them when he arrived in Judea near to Jerusalem. Of this we read an account from an earlier time found in Luke chapter 10. Now it came to pass, as they went, that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, or our Mariam, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered, or burdened, about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. However, even with that record in Luke chapter 10, the origination 
of the relationship is simply not mentioned in any of the Gospels, as the Gospels are written in a very simple and concise manner. It may have been right there in Luke. For a ministry of three and a half years and a lifetime of over 33 years, there is very little about where Yahshua had slept and about many of the people with whom he had associated himself. The Gospels are not a biography of Christ, but rather they are a testimony of his being, his purpose, his words, and his works. Of course, in that, we have the message of good news for the children of Israel. Now, in relation to the news concerning Lazarus, then hearing, Yahshua said, this sickness is not to result in death, but it is for the honor of Yahweh in order that the Son of Yahweh is magnified on account of it, or extolled because of it. As Yahshua Christ had asserted before the Pharisees, which is recorded in John chapter 5, he is the promised son of the second psalm, the son who would rule all nations, where it says in part, I will declare the decree, Yahweh has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Yet being Yahweh God himself, he was also the Savior who was prophesied to come into the world and do the works which were written for him to do, so that men would know him, and so they would magnify him. And they did, which is why we are Christians today. So in verse 5, we read, Now Yahshua loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here John establishes the fact that there must have been a standing relationship between this family and Yahshua Christ, even if its full origin and history are never explained and mentioned elsewhere only in Luke. The Codex Beze has filio here in verse 5. Filio for the word love, which we may render as had affection for, to maintain the distinction with agapeo. Here it's agapeo in the preponderance of manuscripts. Either word may be rendered as love or cherish, among other things. And, and this next part I'm going to talk about just cracks me up. Many commentators strive to make concrete distinctions between these two words, filio and agapeo, even affecting matters of doctrine. The truth is that while each word had some peculiar uses, Agapeo was used at feasts. Um, filio was used of the act of kissing. So each word had peculiar uses outside of the bounds of their usual uses. A brief survey of the use of each of these words in a lexicon, such as Liddell and Scott, shows that the words were used quite interchangeably throughout the entire 
classical and Hellenistic periods. But they were rarely used to express sexual or erotic love, which is the verb ereo, which as a noun is eros. And of course, Eros was the god of that type of love, of erotic love. And that's the word that we get the word erotic from, is that Greek word Eros. So Philio and Agapeo, if you really sit down and look at the, and I have the links here in my text. You could click on the links for this word under verse 5, go to verse 5 to my commentary and click on the link at Filio and click on the link at Agapeo and you'll have to click links on the pages at Tufts perhaps, Tufts University, which has the complete um, intermediate Liddell and Scott lexicon and the complete ninth edition the voluminous lexicon, it's huge. I have it here on my shelf. The complete ninth edition of Liddell and Scott. All of it's online, and I've always found it to be accurate. And rather than thumb through my own paper lexicons, which I do on occasion because I have notes, but rather than thumb through them all the time, I simply go to Tufts University and use their online edition. It's a lot easier to write a podcast. I could just cut and paste, right? Verse 6. Therefore, as he heard that he is sick, then at that time he remained in that place where he was for two days. Whereupon, after this, he says to the students... We should go into Judea again. Apparently, Christ waited purposefully for two days, not rushing to the side of the sick man, and being in Capernaum in Galilee, according to the other gospel accounts. It would take as many as four days to get to Bethany. By then, Lazarus was dead and laid to rest in a tomb, for at least that long. As Christ knew that he was dead before they departed on their journey, which is recorded here in verses 11 through 13. So it is evident that Christ waited until he knew that Lazarus was dead before departing from Galilee. The students say to him, Rabbi, now the Judeans sought to stone you, yet you go there again, or yet again, you go there. Six months before this, on the great last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Judeans sought to stone him, as it is recorded at the very end of John chapter 8. Then again, four months before, during the Feast of Restoration, they sought to stone him, as it is recorded in John chapter 10. Now, although Christ had already told his disciples on several occasions that he was going to be slain in Jerusalem and then resurrected, for example, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 9 or in Matthew chapters 16 and 17, they nevertheless feared his return to the city. So it evidently didn't sink in. 
that he was telling them he was going to be crucified and resurrected. Yahshua replied, are there not 12 hours in a day? The Codex Beze has, does not a day have 12 hours? If one should walk in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this order. But if one should walk in the night, he stumbles because the light is not with him. Christ is evidently referring to himself as he is the light of the world, so his apostles should simply obey him. Here the Greek word cosmos is order, rather than the usual way which I render it as society. Speaking transcendentally, it seems as if Christ was referring to something greater than the earthly Adamic or Israelite society, to which I would assert that the word most frequently refers in Scripture, which I shall discuss further on after a digression concerning the meaning of the word for day. The Greek or Roman day was divided into 12 hours. And the night, distinguished from the day, into four watches. The word for day referred to the daylight hours and not to our modern 24-hour calendar period. The number of hours in a day fluctuates depending on the time of the year and one's location on the globe. Yes, I said globe, as the statement I just made would prove. Jerusalem has two hours and 15 minutes more sunlight on December 21st than London, England, and four hours, 46 minutes more than Anchorage, Alaska. I apologize to my Australian friends listening to this because I'm prejudiced towards the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> On June 20th, the opposite date on the calendar, on June 20th, London has two hours and 25 minutes more sunlight than Jerusalem, and Anchorage, Alaska has five hours and eight minutes more sunlight than Jerusalem. Between the two dates, the numbers the number of hours of daylight in Jerusalem varies by four hours and nine minutes, but we could see that in Anchorage, Alaska, it varies by over double that between June 21st and December 21st. I have a link here in my notes to a website that you could click on. Click on the phrase March of 2019 in my commentary under verse 9, and you could be led to a website which gives charts of the daylight hours throughout the year for every month of the year for any location you want on the globe. I'm sorry, I had to say that. In modern Jerusalem, in mid to late March, which are indeed the weeks leading up to the Passover, there are almost exactly 12 hours of daylight in a day. This year, March of 2019, the closest days were the 16th and 17th of the month, 
which only deviated from 12 hours by a single minute. So Christ was certainly accurate for that time of year when he said there were 12 hours in a day. I was pretty um, intrigued by that because he couldn't have said it in the end of June when there were 14 hours in a day. Actually, he could have, but the Greek concept of an hour was not exactly like our English concept. They divided the day up into 12 periods they, that they perceived to be an hour, whether it was 60 of our minutes or not, didn't matter. Didn't matter to them. But the light which God spoke into existence and separated from darkness in the third and fourth verses of Genesis chapter 1, which was the first day, and where day and night were first distinguished, was not necessarily physical light, such as light from the sun, as the sun was not created until the 16th verse of the day of creation. Perhaps it is possible that the first day describes concepts which God had created, light and darkness, truth and lies, etc. But I would rather not speculate. Here Christ also appears to be speaking transcendentally of a higher existence, that if one remains in the truth, then one will not fall. But if one rejects the light of truth or operates in darkness, then one certainly may fall. The allegory appears in Micah chapter 3. Thus saith Yahweh concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace! And he that puts not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Therefore, night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark unto you, that you shall not divine, and the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. The apostles would walk in the light if they had believed the prophecies of Christ. He kept telling them he was going to be crucified and resurrected. They still didn't get it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul of Tarsus made a broader allegory from the same concept, which reveals the transcendental meaning to which Joshua had alluded. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child. And they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light. They were Israelite Christians. And the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Doing that, we know what Paul means by sobriety. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us, whether we wake or sleep, that's important, whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Paul talking about waking and sleeping metaphorically, not literally. The metaphoric references carry through verse 10. Now, after hearing of his friend's illness and tarrying for two days, Christ speaks metaphorically once again while indicating his certainty that Lazarus was dead. He spoke these things, and after this he says to him, Lazarus, our friend, sleeps, but I shall go, that I shall waken him. Next, it is evident that the word awaken is also used metaphorically in relation to resurrection from the dead, although John's further description of the account also reveals that the apostles themselves were confused. Then the students said to him, Prince, if he sleeps, he shall be preserved. The Greek word sozo is primarily to save from death, to keep alive, or to preserve, according to Liddell and Scott. And in the King James Version, it is usually save, but here merely to do well, which I don't get. Evidently, the apostles did not realize from the metaphor that Lazarus was dead. So now John clarifies the meaning for us in verse 13. Now, Yahshua spoke concerning his death, but they supposed that he speaks concerning the sleep of slumber. The word, the verb for sleep in verse 12 is koimeo. And the noun here, the related word, koimesis, both of these words were used metaphorically to describe the sleep of death. Koimesis, even in the Septuagint, in the Wisdom of Sirach, in chapters 46 and 48. The noun for slumber, and it's also a literal word for sleep, is hypnus. It's the word from which we get words like hypnotized, right? It's to be under, which was also often used metaphorically of death. However, by saying peritase koimasios to hupnu concerning the sleep of slumber, John clarifies the meaning for us. Otherwise, he would have written peritase koimasios to thanatu or concerning the sleep of death, thanatos being death, literally and explicitly. So John explained that the apostles thought that he was only concerning the sleep of slumber, that we all, for the most part, try to get during the night, almost every night, but Yahshua had to spell it out for them. So then Yahshua said to them, frankly, Lazarus has died, yet I rejoice on account of you, that you shall have faith, because I was not there, but we must go to him. They shall have faith, because if Christ were in Bethany 
while Lazarus was still sick, or immediately upon his death, perhaps he would only be perceived as having healed him and preventing him from death, from dying. But their faith would be greatly edified if they witnessed him bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And for that reason, he tarried to make certain that Lazarus, Lazarus was both dead and buried before arriving in Bethany. Here and in verse 16, I have rendered a verb, agomen, which is the first person plural present subjunctive form of the verb ago, as if it were an imperative. There is no present imperative form of this verb in the first person, singular or plural. William MacDonald, in his Greek Enchiridion, suggests the translation, let us go, on pages 21 and 22, which is the manner in which the Greek imperative verbs are frequently translated, as it is also apparent throughout the King James Version. Whenever it is an imperative verb, the King James translates it, let us. In spite of the modern grammarians and the Bible grammarians, I insist on translating an imperative verb imperatively as I must or we must. If I were compelled here to adhere to the usual translation of the subjunctive mood, then it would be we should go here and should we go in verse 16 as it also is where it appears in verse 7 of this chapter. In reference to verse 16, which follows, neither the Nestle Aland text nor any of the popular translations render the statement of Thomas in that verse as a question. In other parts of the New Testament, I have identified at least several rhetorical questions which are often not translated as questions in the popular translations. Where a verb of the indicative mood is followed by a verb of the subjunctive mood. Here, that is not the case. As both the verbs for go and die are subjunctive, while the rendering of the King James Version here is plausible, where it says, let us go, that we may die with him, I see an exception and would rather read the statement as a question, imagining Thomas to have been contentious at this point in a manner which is consistent with his reputation as a doubter. Doubting Thomas, right? Then Thomas, who is called Twin. Now, Twin is actually the translation of the Greek word Didymus, which many manuscripts, many translations don't translate. They leave it Thomas, who was called Didymus, but Didymus means twin. So Thomas was somebody's twin brother. Then Thomas, who was called twin, said to the fellow students, must we also go that we may die with him?
Sometimes it is interesting, and this is going to be another long digression. I'm sorry this evening seems to be full of explanations and pedantic presentation, pedantic commentary. Sometimes it is interesting to see how certain ancient or medieval writers, apparently Christians, viewed or interpreted the scriptures. There is a strange account from the 10th century of the raising of Lazarus in the Greek anthology published by the Loeb Classical Library, which is a large collection of inscriptions and epigrams and other writings from various centuries, most of them from early in the Christian era. This account is found in Volume 5, Book 15, Epigram 40 of the anthology. I will include the entire epigram as an appendix to this portion of my commentary, but I will only present the pertinent part here, where the original author embellished the exchange, which was recorded here by John, and our portion begins with the words of Christ, Come, let us haste with all speed to Bethany, where Lazarus's soul left him, that I may have eternal renown, for I go to raise my friend even from hell. And I did um, state that the writer of the epigram embellished this, right? And those excellent and noble-hearted men thus answered him back, Let us go as thou biddest, O, like to thy father. The poetic value of the epigram was disdained or despised by both a later Greek commentator in the manuscript in which it was preserved and by the translator of the modern edition, published in 1918. His name was William Roger Patton. In a footnote, Patton said in part, From a literary point of view, indeed, there is nothing to be said for the production, chiefly made up of Homeric reminiscences, re reminiscences, I'm sorry, reminiscences, acts of reminiscing. In fact, the full epigram flattered Christ more than what is sufficient, and also flattered the apostles more than what is appropriate. And having also read Homer, I may say that the influence from Greek epic poetry and panegyric is fully evident. But what I found most interesting about the epigram, when I encountered it probably 20 years ago, 15 years ago, what I found most interesting about the epigram was that beyond its excessive flattery, there was the departure in the narrative where it parallels verse 16. Rather than Thomas alone saying anything, it portrays all of the apostles as having answered consensually. Then, rather than the answer being, as the King James Version has it, let us go that we may die with him, 
It is, let us go as thou biddest, O, like to thy father. The concept expressed there, that Christ would go to the father in death, was new to the apostles when Christ first introduced it to them in John chapter 16, sometime after the resurrection of Lazarus. So the writer of the epigram attributed the understanding anachronistically. Catholics seem to do it all the time. Yes, that's a stab, stab at Catholics. I'm sorry. In any event, <clears throat> whether the doubting Thomas made a statement or asked a question, when faced with the necessity to return to Judea, he seems to have been anticipating death for himself as well as for Christ and the other apostles. So he had not heeded the prophecies which Christ had made sooner which are recorded in the other Gospels. Just a few days later, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, Christ would indirectly assure them that they themselves would not be harmed upon his death, where we read, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. Up to this point, the dialogue presented by John must have taken place in Galilee, while the other three Gospels say nothing about Lazarus. At this same point, they have Yahshua Christ traveling from Galilee on his final earthly journey to Judea with a multitude of his followers, and some aspects of that journey are recorded in great detail. Of these things, John writes nothing. When we first began to present our commentary on this gospel, we repeated the proposition that John had written his gospel as an endeavor to provide accounts of events with which he was intimately familiar and which he thought were significant, but which the other gospel writers did not include. Quite frequently, that proposition certainly seems to be true. And I say that I repeated it because I myself have heard it in the past. I am not the one that first discovered it, that first made that proposition. Somebody else made it before me. It was maybe Compare or Swift. It was an early Christian identity writer, because I really never read any mainstream commentaries. I peek at Matthew Henry once in a while, and I've read all of Clifton's quotations of mainstream commentaries, but I've never read them myself. I don't care what they say. In the Gospel of Matthew, at the beginning of chapter 19, it says that Christ departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him. Then, towards the end of the journey, after passing through Jericho and healing the blind men and the lepers, 
We read at the beginning of chapter 21. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphaga, I'm going to pronounce this Bethphaga, which is probably the most accurate pronunciation in English that is loyal to the Greek. The G is always hard. It's never soft. Bethphaga, unto the Mount of Olives. Then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. Immediately thereafter, Matthew records the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 9, Christ is in Galilee. And at the beginning of chapter 10, we read, in Capernaum of Galilee in these accounts. He arose from thence, and cometh into the coasts of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again, and, as he was wont, he taught them again. His account accords with Matthew chapter 19. Then in Mark chapter 11, verse 1, we read, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, unto Bethphaga and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sends forth two of his disciples, where they had immediately procured the colt, upon which he then made his entry into Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 17, verse 11, it is evident that Christ is passing through Galilee and Samaria on that same final journey to Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 1, we read, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Then towards the end of the same chapter, And it came to pass, when he was come nigh to Bethphaga and Bethany, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him, and bring him hither. Luke neglected to mention the ass, and only mentioned the colt. Just as we read in Matthew and Mark, Christ then makes his triumphal entry through the gates of Jerusalem, where the people spread out their garments and branches from the trees on the ground before him. And, as only Luke has it, they also declared for him to be king. Here, on the surface, there appears to be a significant discrepancy in the chronology of the events as they are described in John, when this is compared to the other Gospels. Now, Christ has come from Galilee into Judea, which is the final earthly journey that he made to Jerusalem, and John records nothing of it in detail. Two entire chapters of Matthew are devoted to that journey, and one chapter in Mark, mostly chapter 10, and more than two chapters in Luke. Then, in all of these accounts, it seems as if Christ made his triumphal march into Jerusalem as soon as he arrived in Judea. 
and none of them say anything about his first tarrying in Bethany and raising Lazarus from the dead, among other things, such as his brief sojourn in the town called Ephraim. We'll get to that now. According to John, Yahshua Christ arrives in Judea and stops in Bethany and raises Lazarus from the dead, as it is recorded here in John chapter 11. And then, as it is recorded in John chapter 12, he went into the desert for a time to a place called Ephraim in order to avoid the high priests and those who wanted to kill him. After an undetermined, or I should say maybe unmentioned, period of time, he returns to Bethany and attends a supper at the house of Lazarus, Mariam, and Martha, upon which Mariam took a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Finally, the day after that supper, he made his triumphal march through the gates of Jerusalem. This apparent discrepancy becomes even more complex as two of the other Gospels also record the supper where Mariam anointed the feet of Christ with the expensive ointment, but they have it following the triumphal march into Jerusalem. not the night before. In Matthew chapter 26 and in Mark chapter 13, where John has it preceding his, the event of his entry into Jerusalem. Luke did not record or mention this supper at all, yet Luke does seem to leave time, or I should say occasion, for there being an interlude between Yahshua's arrival at Bethany and his triumphal march into Jerusalem, where he preceded his description with the phrase, and it came to pass. And he wrote, and it came to pass when he was come nigh unto Bethphaga and Bethany at the mount called Olives, called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat, loose him and bring him hither. It may be argued that the phrase, and it came to pass, appears very frequently in Luke's Gospel, and it does. Yet it usually does seem to indicate an interlude of time between events wherever it appears, with only a few exceptions. Matthew was an apostle, but not from the very beginning. Therefore, everything before Matthew chapter 9 is vicarious. But he was probably an eyewitness to at least most of what he had recorded thereafter. Mark was not one of the twelve, although he may have been a disciple and an eyewitness to many events. By all early reports, early reports, I speak of all of the 
early Antinicene or church fathers. By all early reports, his gospel is at least mostly mostly written from accounts he received from Peter. John was an apostle from the beginning. He is described as the beloved apostle, and evidently he had witnessed many things which even some of the others had not seen. However, by all early accounts, his gospel, like that of Mark, was not committed to writing until many decades later, until a very late time in his life. The town of Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem. Actually, I'm sorry, it was one and three-quarter miles from Jerusalem since it was placed at 15 stadia. We know that it was one and three-quarter miles. A brisk walk of 30 to 40 minutes. Except for the indeterminate period of time, perhaps only a couple of days or less, which John described that he spent in the wilderness at Ephraim, Yahshua Christ may have lodged in Bethany for at least several of the nights throughout the week or so from the end of his final earthly journey and his arrival in Judea up until the night of the Last Supper and his subsequent arrest. It actually may have been a period of a couple of weeks. If that is the case, and if there was an interlude of time between his arrival in Bethany and his triumphal march into Jerusalem that neither Matthew nor Mark chose to record, then there may have been several suppers at the home of Mariam and Martha before and after that event. And Mariam may even have anointed the feet of Christ more than once. While perhaps one apostle or the other did not remember precisely which occasion that it was that Judas disputed the use of the ointment. That would be the only actual and demonstrable discrepancy in the records of these events among these several accounts. When something is missing, it can only be determined that it was unseen or, for some other reason, not recorded by the disciple who gave the testimony in a particular, in any particular gospel. When something is missing, that's in other Gospels, we can't just say, aha, it didn't happen. As we have before explained, there are several factors explaining all of the apparent discrepancies in the four Gospels, the preponderance of which are not actually discrepancies at all. First, only two of the writers were actual eyewitnesses to at least most of the events of these three and a half years, 
and they are Matthew and John. Luke admits having received the accounts he recorded from unnamed eyewitnesses, including at least some of the disciples, and using them to construct his gospel vicariously. Mark did not make such an admission, but seems to have been a late disciple, and by all early testimonies, his accounts were received from Peter, where only later, after Peter's death, was he encouraged to compile them into a gospel, according to the early church fathers. I have that information in my commentary on Mark that I gave here, I think, back in 2011. Each writer is recording events as they were witnessed from different perspectives, and each writer did not necessarily witness or have a witness for every event. Each writer may also have had a different opinion on which aspects of the events or which events that they had recorded were important or in how they recollected many of the things which they or their witnesses had heard, recollected, or repeated. It is also possible that Christ, traveling from town to town as he spoke to various gatherings of people, gave slightly different versions of some of his parables and other speeches, with one apostle later remembering a different version than another once they endeavored to put them into writing. The reconstruction of any historic event from accounts witnessed by more than one person or provided by witnesses faces those same challenges. When all this is considered, the gospel turns out to be quite accurate indeed. This same understanding also helps to explain why certain accounts are so similar among the three synoptic gospels which each of them records where where each of them records things that the others do not have on modern roads that's enough of that conversation on modern roads going south along the jordan river and through jericho which is the longer route that he had apparently taken it is 104 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem and 113 miles where he had been in Capernaum to Jerusalem. The route through the center of Samaria, which he had taken when he encountered the woman at the well near Shechem in John chapter 4, is considerably shorter, perhaps only 70 miles to Nazareth. So here, once again, Christ delayed by purposely taking the longer route, as John explained, that he took the route on the other side of the Jordan. No, I'm sorry. As our other gospel writers had explained, that he took the route on the other side of the Jordan and came through Jericho. Crossing the Jordan into Judea, Jericho would be the first city encountered just like it was the first city encountered in the days of Joshua, 
when he led the children of Israel across the Jordan River. During the course of his earthly life, Yahshua Christ must have made the long journey from Galilee to Jerusalem nearly a hundred times, if not more. That is because he must have also kept the law, which required every male in Israel to appear before Yahweh three times each year at the Feasts of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Ingathering, as it, explained, as it is explained in Exodus chapter 23, or Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, as they are more frequently called here in the New Testament. Passover was also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So now, at the end of his final earthly journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, of which John recorded nothing while the other gospel writers had written lengthy descriptions, he finally arrives in Bethany. But John practically ignores the details of the journey while he focuses only on the circumstances surrounding Lazarus. Then, coming, Yahshua found him having already been in the tomb for four days. Yahshua had received the report that Lazarus was sick, and he tarried in Galilee for two days until he could announce that Lazarus was dead, whereupon they departed for Judea. The journey, which on foot was at least 113 miles, and which was purposely the long route, would be difficult to make inside of four days. But John attests that it took that long. It is certainly possible for a man to walk 30 miles in a day, but with the other things which had happened along the way that the apostles had recorded, that the other apostles had recorded in their gospels, they must have walked through nearly all of the daylight hours. Contrary to Jewish commentary, and Talmudic traditions, there is no Old Testament law regarding the burial of the dead. There is only a law that one who is crucified or hanged on a tree cannot be left to remain hanging overnight and must be buried the same day that he is hanged, in Deuteronomy chapter 21. There is, however, evidence that in at least some cases the dead were immediately buried. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias falls dead before Peter, and the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. So Ananias was probably dead and nearly forgotten when his wife arrived three hours later to meet the same fate. So it seems to have been a custom that the dead were buried immediately. I think wakes were invented by the Irish, perhaps. That's kind of a joke. And we shouldn't doubt that Lazarus, or we really have no reason to doubt that Lazarus wasn't buried immediately in keeping with the apparent custom.
Later, when Christ is crucified, in keeping with that law in Deuteronomy, he is placed in a tomb almost immediately after he died, but was later visited by women who more carefully dressed his dead body. Coffins were not yet generally used, and in ancient Israel, family tombs were reused by eventually moving the bones of the deceased to an ossuary, which is a chest, a box, or an even larger space that was reserved for the collection of the bones of those who had been buried previously. That is why it says in John chapter 19 that Christ was buried in a new sepulcher or tomb, wherein was never a man yet laid. It was a virgin tomb. Barnabas would have been laid in a tomb similar to the one used to bury Christ. Dead bodies, dead bodies were wrapped in linen, as we also see in Acts chapter 5, and laid out in a tomb where the bacteria would decay the flesh. Once there were only bones, they would be moved to an ossuary to make room for the next family member who passed. So apparently, the ancient Israelites did not simply lay their dead in a hole and cover them with dirt something which seems quite dishonorable in comparison to this practice which is evident in our scriptures. Arriving in Bethany, Christ has completed his final earthly journey to Jerusalem. Of course, this last earthly journey does not really end until the resurrection. However, it will take 10 of these final 11 chapters of John to get that far. When we return, we will resume with the raising of Lazarus. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.